Hello, dudes, dudettes, duders, and everyone in between, and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am your host, Jesse Kester, and today I am not, I am not alone. Mariko is here, producer of the Little Tokyo Ma- Maxi series, Macro series? Mad Max, I like- Mad Macro, Mad Mac, <laughs> the Mad Macro series. The uh, Little Tokyo Goes Big series. Yes, big series in Little Tokyo. Yeah! Yes, we got the name. Finally, <laughs> people keep asking the name of this, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you are hearing brilliance and real. You can put on the headphones. <laughs> so you're going to help me out. Yes. Um, what we're going to do is introduce the episodes together as a team because we did this whole series together as a team. So why would I Damn oust it. you from the seat of power now when I desperately need you to help me frame these conversations? Because you can, you can really uh, make clear who's who and how they relate to the little Tokyo world. And I can make clear uh, my experience talking to them and what they might be able to look forward to in those conversations. Unique yes. To the fishbowl. I think that sounds like a perfect idea. Week one, episode one of week one. We're doing two episodes a week for this series. We're going to be talking week one is uh, historians, legacy members of the little Tokyo community. And this episode, we're talking to Mike Murase. Who is Mike Murase? So Mike Murase is someone that I always refer to as like my go-to historian of little Tokyo, um, maybe tied with Bill Watanabe. But uh, I work with Mike Murase at the Little Tokyo Service Center. He has been, um, he's on the Terasaki Budokan team, which is working for the gymnasium that's currently being built in Little Tokyo, um, Los Angeles, between second and third. And he really, not only is he a longtime community activist, passionate about politics, um, community issues, he really understands from a historical perspective what's been happening in Little Tokyo over Decades. I would say years, but actually it's decades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, it's a really, really good interview. This was a huge gear shift for me because I was coming off of the weeks of improv comedians, mm-hmm. which was kind of like firecracker goofball fun. And then uh, Mike Burase just like, <laughs> right. Kind of, it, was, it was a bit of a splash of cold water, not in a bad way, just like total gear shift. And I think on this interview, mm-hmm. you will hear me maybe going for laughs still, like I'm still on that right. train when it's right. not um, not really his wheelhouse. And uh, his his responses, I think, are, are, are uh, funnier than my setups <laughs> time and again. <laughs> that deadpan delivery. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that when you look at a community like Little Tokyo, which is also a designated historic Japan town in the state of California um, and First Street North, which is where we were sitting when we're doing the interviews, is actually a nationally historically designated landmark as well. And you really, you can't have this conversation about a neighborhood and a community without understanding the historical perspective and why people are kind of working to save little Tokyo quotes in my, around my head right now. Um, if, If you don't understand why historically this community has been really important to Japanese and Japanese Americans. This, yeah, this one helps a lot to understand that. And um, we will include links in the description to Ghidra. Yes. That the whole thing has been archived online now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike was integral. And we, it's a very visual thing we talk about in the middle of the episode about Ghidra. Mm-hmm. So it would help if, as you're listening, you just look up the, the actual magazine and get some idea of, of why I'm gushing so much about the yeah. the underground aesthetic, but also this really strong emotional feeling to yeah. from cover to cover to cover. Mm-hmm. You get this, this real pull, this real push from the community. Yeah. No, and I think also one of the things, and this is one of the reasons I kind of left breaking news journalism, is I felt like we were constantly losing context when we were talking about current day issues mm-hmm. and people will be like, why do I care if this business is here or not? Why do I care if little Tokyo, we have tons of Japanese Americans down in Torrance or Gardena. And I think that historical perspective or the context of why we care about, which requires us to kind of travel back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that Mike is old. He's older. <laughs> He's older than either of us. <laughs> um, Wait, is he older than both of us put together? We don't have to go into that <laughs> question. He might be. So anyways, he's a little Tokyo elder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that not only, you know, was it important to pay respect to the elders and those who came before us fighting the good fight. Like in no way am I or anyone that's my contemporary uh, like uh, f- doing this for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the historical perspective and the context was really, really important for me to make sure it was included in this discussion about entrepreneurship and community control and self-determination. And that's not to say that it's dry and not fun. Like the, that's one of, <laughs> no. one of the things, one of the f- reasons that I feel so not hung up, but really attracted to Ghidra is, uh, that, that, when you talk about that historical perspective, you do feel a, a like a generational quality loss. Like you might not be feeling the emotions that happened back then, but when you look at these covers of Ghidra, when you when you flip through the the yeah. magazine, the the emotions are very present. It, it yeah. doesn't feel far away at all. It feels very very close. And to have these straight line connections to these other mm-hmm. times with with an emotional core, not just a statistical or data core, yeah. really really helps. Uh, frame the conversation and keep enthusiasm up about the conversation. Yeah, definitely. And I think also sometimes um, when people are looking at like modern day, like online mags, like say like Mochi Mag or mm-hmm. Kuriam or thinking about some of those that actually made it to print like uh, Audrey or um, another one was like uh, Azam um, that were touching on Asian American issues. They, it's good to kind of like acknowledge those that came before us. And Ghidra is mm-hmm. a really good example of um, an Asian American Zine? 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 Zine. I don't know what it is yet. Zine or Zine? (laughs) I go with Zine because it's like magazine. Yeah. Um, That was, what was it? The 70s that Ghidra was around? I think late 60s to early 70s. Early 70s. A five and a half year run. Yeah. um, And I think... It's Yo, if you ever need me at the Ghidra uh, trivia night and Mike's <laughs> not showing up, I might be your guy. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And I also just feel like the covers of Ghidra are just so beautiful. They're um, so good. And and a lot of the covers also do speak to issues that were happening or at, happening at the time in Little mm-hmm. Tokyo and, and other um, ethnic communities around Los Angeles. Look at us talking over Mike's time. Let's turn it over to the man himself. Is that okay? Yes, definitely. All right. Then without further ado, we give to you Mike Murase. Drops. Morpheus is fighting Neo. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am your host, Jesse Kester. Today, I am joined by the one, the only, the very illustrious... Mike Morase, who is patiently tolerating all of this nonsense at the top of the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Mike. We, uh, the music will be done in a second, and then uh, we can we can ease off that throttle a little bit. And Morpheus is done fighting Neo. Hello, and welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Excellent. Good morning. Um, what we do at the top of the show is something that's called Five and Five, where I ask five questions, and you'll have one minute to answer each one. This is kind of to burn through the basics. Okay. Um, and we have a little timer, and the timer goes beep, 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 so it's going to cut you off after a minute, guaranteed. Okay. Let's go. Uh, oh, okay. Let's do it. Here we go. Those are the beeps. Question number one, where did you grow up and how did that inform your adulthood? Okay, I was born in Japan and came to this country when I was nine years old. And since that time, I grew up in an area that is now called South Central LA. And I say that because at the time that I was living there, it wasn't called South Central, but it's near the Los Angeles Coliseum and the demographics were mostly black and Asian. And how did that how did that end up informing your adulthood? How did that I mean that's a that's a very multicultural background. I think uh, being a child of immigrants and an immigrant myself and growing up in the fifties and sixties in a very diverse multicultural neighborhood, I think uh, shaped the way I think and 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 look at society. And time is up. Question Question number two. What is the must-engage media, the book, the album, the movie that opened up your brain to the universe, that kind of showed you the DNA of the human condition? When I was becoming uh, involved in political activity uh, as a, a young man and as a novice, I think the book that I read by Malcolm X the autobiography of Malcolm X was uh, very, I don't know, influential in my thinking. And it, it actually 
really、uh, question my previous thoughts a lot and and try to you know and and made me think about things in very different and new ways. Beautiful. Would you like to forfeit your remaining thirteen seconds? Yes. All right, you're doing fine. Question number three. What brings you the greatest joy in your life? Um. Well, there's so many things because I, I, you know, have an appreciation for life and everything that happens around me. But I think、uh, being able to look forward to the next day and thinking that things could get better in society, I think that's what gives me joy. But、uh, beyond that, I I like solace and、uh, you know, and being in nature. Uh, trying to see things from a very broad and long-term perspective. Beautiful. Would you like to forfeit your remaining fifteen seconds? <laughs> yes, I, you're very concise. I'm very concise. <laughs> I would, I would, yeah, I would be saying yes, no. I'd <laughs> be a, the worst interview for you. <laughs> All right, coming up on question number four. What gets under your skin? Hmm. I think I'm,、um, you know, generally not as tolerant as I would like to be. So there are a lot of things that get under my skin.、Uh, for example, the morning news every morning <laughs> these days gets under my skin. The evening news gets under my skin. <laughs> What about the afternoon news? <laughs> afternoon news as well. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of things that are going on in society today、mm-hmm. that really, I hope people will wake up to and stay woke. Would you like to forfeit your remaining eight seconds? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Last question is it two parter? What is the best advice that you've received in your lifetime, and what is the best advice that has come from your brain that you want to put out into the universe? All right, this is going to be a long pause for radio. <laughs> But、um, I think.、Uh, I don't know. I have to think about that. All right. Okay. <laughs> and that has been five and five. We're gonna end but, but, it there. No. And that was you asked me six questions. Let us、yeah. slow things down a little bit. Is it okay if we do? Yep.、Um, I know you. First time I met you, I think I was maybe two, three weeks into my time in LA. I had just gotten here, and you were doing a presentation. And you had mentioned the Watts riots,、right. of which I had no concept whatsoever.、Right. And you very graciously walked me through the basics of it in this、uh, public stage. So thank you for、uh-huh. for taking the time from that discussion to to break it down for me. How old were you when you moved from Japan? You were born in Japan, right? I was born in Japan, and a、uh, couple years after World War II ended. Okay, I'm seventy one right now. Uh, in between, I came when I was nine years old with my family, and、uh, I would say I was about eighteen years old when the Watts riots happened. So、okay. it was during the time when I was questioning a lot of things、um, about society, about what I was going to become, and a lot of different things. And、uh, and I think、uh, Watts riots、um, was. One event that took place very close to my home, but、uh, one of many events that were taking place throughout、uh, America during the '60s,、uh, and that particular incident had started with a police community encounter. A young man was stopped by the police,、um, and then、uh, some altercation. Uh, happened in、uh, I think it's around 103rd and and Central or somewhere around there, and uh, that uh, incident sparked、uh, bigger bi- bigger and bigger resistance among people 
against uh, police brutality that was going on, not just at that time, but, you know, daily. Yeah. In, yeah. in, in uh, particularly in black communities. Um, there, you know, I, I remember there were uh, riots or urban rebellion taking place in places like uh, Newark, New Jersey, mm-hmm. or Detroit, or um, a number of other cities across the country. So Watts riots was one of those. Uh, but uh, I think that made me think about why is this contradiction, this, this uh, um, you know, injustice going on. Uh, and, you know, I think a number of my friends were also kind of caught up in the, the riots themselves. So, like, I, you know, it was, it was very close to home. Can we, I'd like to go back to Japan just a little bit, because mm-hmm. it's not every day that we have somebody on whose parents were in Japan for the end of World War II. And I, right. I wonder kind of where they were at, if that, if that was part of your upbringing, and if so, how, like, what was, what was their view of that war, and how did, that, how did they communicate that to you as a child? How did that take shape in your brain? Okay, I, I have a somewhat of a unique background in that uh, my father was actually born in uh, Arizona. Mm-hmm. So he's a Nisei, born in this country, went back to Japan. So he's a Kibei Nisei. And uh, he was going to school and studying uh, to become a dentist when the war broke out. And so he, but he always had the desire to come back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But because of the war, he was kind of stuck there. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, that's where he met my mother, who was also has an interesting background in that she was born in Manchuria because her mother, you know, she's full Japanese, but uh, her uh, father was one of the settlers that Japanese, uh, you know, basically colonized Manchuria in the pre-war days and uh, in, had a policy of encouraging Japanese citizens to move to Manchuria. Yeah, so, so both my, of your parents were genetically Japanese, but both foreigners in Japan. Right. Wow. Although they both had Japanese citizenship, but uh, yeah, yeah, they didn't yeah. feel, I don't think, comfortable in, in Japanese society. My father in particular always wanted to come back to the U.S., but after the end of World War II in 1945, he was not able to actually start the process until 1952 mm-hmm. when U.S. laws were changed to allow you know, a person like him to come back. Um, and so it wasn't until 1956 that our family was able to move back over here. So that he'd been wanting to go the whole time anyway. Yeah. It was yeah. just a, a political, yeah, a political delay. Yeah. So uh, you asked me about where my family was. They were in a small town about a hundred miles uh, east of Hiroshima during the war, and uh, you know they heard about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th of 1945. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the I guess, the uh, positive things about th- that war ending and the, the U.S.-enforced uh, peace constitution was that I think uh, the, the peace constitution of Japan and uh, the Japanese government were, in a sense, forced to adopt uh, peace education in society. But it became a good thing because I think there's a, uh, a very significant part of Japanese history where people themselves believe that war is not good and that, mm-hmm. that by all means that peace should be preserved. And you saw that in Japanese society in the 60s, 70s, and even like as two, three years ago when they opposed Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's uh, efforts to change the peace constitution so that the GA tie, the self-defense yep. force, could fight overseas. Under the, the, the silly, the best defense is a good offense clause. Of, right, yeah. right. Which, you know, a lot, a lot of young people, a lot of Japanese society oppose that even now. So That's one of the, I, I would swing by Ginza a lot for various reasons when I was living in Tokyo mm-hmm. and twice a month there'd be a parade of activists right. demonstrating right. against right. some some war effort or right. uh, 
the Ospreys, the the helicopters that can or the planes that can take off vertically. There were right, huge right. protests against one of those right. landing in Japan. Um, anyway, please, sorry, <laughs> this is not about my experiences. Yeah. Well, that's true. You. Um, so the, the, your your parents were counted themselves among the peaceniks. Is that safe yes. to assume? They weren't active, but I think they they believed in. Okay. Uh, preserving peace is, is an important thing. I think, you know, any society that sees the devastation of war, uh, I think there, you know, the, there's an imprint left about how, it, you know, ordinary people uh, yes. suffer, suffer so. And Japan is unique in that it was scarred twice by nuclear bombs. Right. It's not only the only country to have been scarred once, it's the only country to, be have, to have been scarred twice by it. Right. And I wonder if there is, like, once you've been hurt in that way as a nation, if it's, if the, the, the fundamental, the core desire for peace is uh, sensitized, I, is brought to the surface. Yeah, I believe that it is among the, the masses of people. Uh, you know, there's still... Um, contradiction with the the policymakers, the government, mm-hmm. the Liberal Democratic Party, um, you know, monopoly capital, all those things that their policies are are not you know in keeping with the really the spirit and the the sentiments of the masses of people. I think that's that's uh, common globally. Yes. Um, so you you're you're how old are you when you get here? I was nine. You were nine. Yeah. Okay. Easy move. Did you land here in this predominantly black and Japanese neighborhood and slide right into a, a group of friends or what? Well, no. It's, uh, first of all, crossing the ocean was by boat. No way. How long did it take? <laughs> it took about two weeks. That's amazing. Was it anything about that comfortable or was it a nightmare? Um, or wait, was your family traveling I was young enough not to care. If they were like dentists and stuff, did they have the money to, to make it a good... A comfortable enough trip. No, th- okay. We uh, slept in whatever the the lower deck is. You're it, kidding. It, yeah. So, so you land in the in the L.A. version of Ellis Island and right and kind of get a comp- like. What's the landing like? What What is your perspective as a nine year old? What are you seeing and thinking? Okay, I've you know repeated this many times, but uh, once we came into San Francisco Harbor and landed at one of the piers there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that kind of struck my mind is uh, I saw, uh, you know, during those days, they didn't have cargo containers, so there were a lot of labor to move yeah, uh, yeah. shipment uh, and luggage. And so all the hard labor that was being done with uh, trucks and dollies and all these things, they were all black. Mm-hmm. And all the people with the shiny badges, the customs officers and the uniforms, they were all white. Mm-hmm. And that kind of struck me because I thought that prior to coming to America, I had learned that, or I had studied that uh, the blacks have been uh, free from slavery many uh-huh, years uh-huh, ago. Uh-huh. But I thought that that's so, so that the, the scene there just thought there's this big distinction between blacks and whites. And I thought they were slaves. Mm-hmm. And that confused me. That was one impression that I had. Our primary export is uh, uh, promises of greatness, mm-hmm. and our highest import, I think, is disappointed children. <laughs> so, right. Uh, you get there. You move to L.A. straight away. You, right. And um, uh, you acclimate smooth enough or not really? Well, um, how, how long before you're starting to get active? Like, when do you get that bug as a, as a teenager well, this is a funny story, but the, just to answer your first question, I think, uh, you know, in retrospect, there are a lot of conflicts and a lot of things that resulted from me being an immigrant. But as a child growing up, I thought it was, I didn't attribute any of the conflicts or any of the difficulties with being an immigrant. I just, I just thought that's just being a, a, pers- a part, of, yeah, yeah, part, yeah. part of childhood. But, uh, for example, um, when I went to school in this country, like I said, they were mostly black and, and, and a handful of Asians. The Asians were mostly Japanese Americans, so they're Sansei, third generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't feel, initially, I didn't feel accepted by 
uh, sansei. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, the term FOB, fresh off the boat, was a derogatory uh, term that they used. Now it's a hit show on ABC. Yeah, against me. And, um, and I think, you know, learning history later, I understand that the Nisei and Sansei coming out of the war experience here mm-hmm. were told by the government, told by other people not to be so Japanese or Japanese Z. Yeah, yeah. Don't speak Japanese, don't act Japanese. And, and even if it wasn't explicitly said, I think the message was pretty loud and clear throughout right. World War II what was expected. Right. So I think in the, the minds of the Sansei children, my peers, mm-hmm. they saw me as being too Japanese because I'm an immigrant. Yeah. yeah and I spoke yeah. Japanese. And so they, they sort of, uh, uh, you know, like uh, ignored me, neglected, whatever. I was not among them. And in fact, I got along better with the black uh, children in the neighborhood than I did with with uh, the Sanseis. And uh, so, but it, so it took time before yeah. I got acclimated. And, and I could tell you that between nine and maybe 12 or 13 years old, for three or four years, I had to go through the adjustment of thinking in Japanese, in Nihongo. Yeah. And then translating in my mind and speaking. Yes, by, yes, yes. By a by labor time, intense process. Yeah. By the time I was 13 or 14, I was adapting to and more thinking yeah. and, and literally, you know, like speaking mm-hmm. what I was thinking. So that process, um, I think by that time, I think I was more accepted by Sansi because I was much more like them. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So you learn how to acclimate and right. kind of blend in. Uh, but yeah, so I think that was an interesting process. Um, I, I can give you one other example too. I was I was going to a church uh, that the sponsors of our our you know like our immigration had recommended, and uh, it was a a Japanese American church on the west side. And so there again, the Sansei kids were, they were in a Boy Scout troop. Mm-hmm. And I could never be invited to be in that Boy Scout troop because I was. You know, I went to Boy Scouts for two weeks. You weren't missing much. It's not that great. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway. So. So when do you start getting the, the fire in your stomach? When do you, when do you get pissed off at the. <laughs> the Okay, I think these are disconnected things, but one of the, um, you know, just in the daily life of a family, in those days, uh, we didn't have a car. So, like, my sister, myself, and my parents, four of us would go to the supermarket, which is like maybe eight, nine blocks away. Mm -hmm. And four of us went because each of us had to carry two bags of, of groceries, and we didn't have a car. So, so. In doing so, one of the things is that uh, I saw how my parents were mistreated or disrespected only because they spoke broken English mm-hmm. and they sometimes not understandable in English. And so, you know, the, the grocery clerk or other people would uh, do the typical thing of, I don't understand you. Speak English. Yeah. Speak yeah. louder. Or, you know, different things. Um, and, and and that that I will know, tell you after a decade in Japan, say yelling at a Japanese person to speak louder is not the solution right. to the right. communication block you're yeah. hitting. So as Doesn't a child, help. yeah. So as a child, that got me upset mm-hmm. that my parents would be disres- disrespected that way. Um. So, so I think. Those uh, daily, you know, microaggressions, mm-hmm. whatever, are, I think, kind of stuck with me, but they weren't formed into any kind of a political thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just uh, things that but I remember. But the feeling, yeah. if there aren't words for it yet, yeah. the feeling is there. So that's one thing that happened. The other thing that kind of led to my activism m- many years later is that in junior high school, we have these homeroom elections for president and mm-hmm. vice president in the homeroom. There's about 30 kids, right? And one year, this guy named Gary Furuta was uh, 
was a shoe in to become the next homeroom president. Mm-hmm. Because, and people were talking about it. He, Gary's going to be the president. Gary's going. But on the day of the election in homeroom, he got sick and he didn't come. And so the teacher had a rule that you had to be there to be a, a candidate. And so I became the homeroom president by default because I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of kind of changed my thinking about what I could do, as what I can contribute and um, in terms of service and leadership skills. That's what made me think I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, how did that, how did those early, early, like you go to college at a certain point or did you skip that and get right to the, to the business of, of I mean, this is the sixties yeah. now. So there's a yeah. lot of business to do in the world yeah, of activism right. and right. social organization. This is kind of hot. So I did both. I went to college. Mm-hmm. What were you studying? Okay. I started in engineering, okay. which was a safe thing for an Asian American to do this, or the, you know, what you produce and what your accomplishments are very mm-hmm. measurable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Objective. And your then, parents are all in on this. They, they think My it's a parents were in on it. Um, but that lasted for about half a year, half of my freshman year. And I decided to change to English. Okay. Because I, I liked English. I mean, in fact, I felt that um, because I was struggling to learn English all the way through, that I made much more of an effort than most people did. So I feel as though I probably have a better command of English grammar than most Americans. Yes, yeah, we can speak it, but we can't explain it for the most part. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, I went to school at UCLA, but I didn't go to classes after I got interested in political activities. So how, how are your parents taking the, the move from engineer to English major to not even showing up to class? Are they supporting you? Like, are they, are they of the mind, this is why we came here was so that these kids could have a chance to explore who they are or? I, you know, I think, uh, when it came to me, mm-hmm. I think they were very, um, liberal, very, uh, what do you, how would you say? Willing to let me do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my sister was not as rebellious or not as, as uh, outgoing. So like she was more the, the, uh, the model student and okay. she went to school and all of that. But, but for me, I, th- I felt like at the time that there's so much to learn outside the classroom that if I stayed in the classroom, I would be missing out on the things that I can learn outside. And, uh, whether it was like uh, UCLA has the resources to invite like world you know renowned figures to to come and to come to speak and as well as controversial and other kinds of figures one of them was Eldridge Cleaver mm-hmm. of the Black Black Panther Party and you know I remember him coming to UCLA and I I had a class but I wanted to hear him speak mm-hmm. so I would go to hear him speak that's kind of an example of, yeah yeah you know, but. Over time, I became not only observers and a kind of a student, but uh, becoming more and more involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement and the, the civil rights movement the, and really uh, the movement to start Asian American studies as a part of ethnic studies. And uh, so all those things, I think uh, some of the professors knew I was doing those things. And so they were very um, loose about my grades. In mm-hmm. fact, they were very generous about my grades because I would not go to class at all and still get grades. Yeah, because yeah. they knew. But what, they knew you weren't what, sleeping. Like you right. weren't cutting class to just drink beers right. and hang out. It right. was to to be a part of of right. important things that seemed important to you. At the yeah, and and many of the professors supported all those movements too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, something distressing. You're talking about what it was like to grow up. With, with as an immigrant with immigrant parents and the the casual racism the microaggressions that you would see um, were what 50 years later from those stories mm-hmm. same story today say yes. it's the the cyclical nature of it really 
uh, not even cyclical. The permanent nature of it really feels uh, frustrating. And yeah. how do you? What, what are you seeing? Well, you know, the day after the election two years ago in 2016, mm-hmm. I mean, it really felt like a physical punch to the gut. Yeah, yeah. To know that someone like Trump would be the president, mm-hmm. but. I, I think you know, just thinking about it more deeply, it, that the the seeds of Trump becoming president were always there. Yeah, and, and yeah. I think I think um, I, I try not to look at it as either cyclical or permanent. Like all right, said. all right, please, okay. and wise me for a moment. I try to think of it in a more hopeful way of even if it's going around a circle that mm-hmm. it's more like a spiral upward okay. so that we're not ending in the same place every time that there's some process that took place that took us to a higher ground yeah okay and uh, I think it is you know you could talk about cyclical or pendulum or a lot of those kinds of things but but I'm I try to look at it like there's a lesson that's learned at each turn of the yeah, s- yeah, uh, yeah. S- cycle. So, um, what do you reckon is going better on this cycle? Like you've seen the cycle before, as we spiral up, what what are we? What's going right? It's easy to lose sight of of the the hopeful side of things. Where do you find solace in all of it? Yeah, I think the um, the fact that. Well, you know, there are a lot of uh, truisms or a lot of quotations by famous uh, revolutionaries or progressive leaders. But uh, one that expresses that thought is uh, that uh, wherever there's oppression, there is resistance. Mm -hmm. And another one is masses are the makers of history. I think sometimes, you know, uh, in a... Like if you look through a narrow people, you might see that things are getting worse and people are giving up. Mm-hmm. But I never see people giving up. They keep fighting, keep fighting. And, you know, you, we talk about the faceless, nameless masses of people by the thousands, the millions that are resisting in their own way. Now, I, I don't think it's coalesced and, you know, it's galvanized to a, an organized force to really make that qualitative leap in, in society, but uh, those things are always taking place. And when you think about um, how history is written, you know, like um, you can think that individual leaders shape history. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's the, the masses of people that make history. Now, um, and so each time there's a progression in society from slavery to feudalism to, I'm doing air quotes, yes, of democracy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there'll be higher and higher forms of social organization. And at the same time, I think hope that individually people are becoming more human and more humane and so and i think i see that and i mean even in the things that i see about how young people are more open mm-hmm. or more accepting of things that my generation of people were had a difficult time accepting yeah whether yeah. it has to do with any of the issues of of race class gender sexual orientation mm-hmm. any of those things and uh, so I think that gives me hope that there it, that it you know what I'm saying is right that there's a spiral and we're at a higher level yeah, than we yeah. were a while back you said something back there that really uh, kind of made my brain rethink how I frame a mm-hmm. lot of information and that was that there there uh, is no oppression without resistance uh-huh. and it uh, the, the thought that popped into my head was that that makes amazing sense because there can't be oppression without resistance Oppre- oppression is defined by the fact that there are people resisting what's being done to them if there's no resistance it, I mean not internally not externally then it's not oppression it's equilibrium mm-hmm. so it, it it is easy to see uh, 
to see oppression and be disheartened, to be really beaten down by it, to feel uh, 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 an incredible hopelessness, mm-hmm. especially to see oppression decade after decade after decade after right. century after century after century. Right. Um, but but uh, you've just complicated that whole algorithm in my head in uh, in ways I don't understand yet. Uh-huh. So thank you for for wording it that way and expressing it that way. No question there. You don't have to answer questions. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just repeating what somebody else said. <laughs> that works too. Yeah. I'll be it, repeating that it, one. It may have been Frederick Douglass, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, so, so what are you working on now? <laughs> you kind of you sent me for a bit of a loop. I'm trying to think of the next, the next area of the conversation. I know exactly what it is. Can you please tell us a little bit about Ghidra, the, 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 the posters that are lining the very walls of this room that I know so little about? Okay, there again. Um, I have to go back to UCLA days. But So in the late 60s, the two uh, key movements were the anti-Vietnam War movement and the civil rights movement extended. Because mm-hmm. when I say that because the civil rights movement thought of in a narrow sense is talking about Martin Luther King and the black movement in the South. But the black movement was all over the country. And then black movement also influenced many other movements, the Latinos, Asians, labor movement, student movement, all those things. So the, the civil rights movement extended, touched me because... Every time I went to school and took U.S. history, social studies, whatever, we never learned about Asian Americans, Japanese mm-hmm. Americans. What is what is my people's history? What do they contribute to our U.S. society? Been here for over 100 years. Now about 130 years. So in when we were fighting for ethnic studies, that was an extension of saying, okay, we want not only voting rights, but we want to know about our own history. Because mm-hmm. knowledge informs and helps us yeah, yeah. vote correctly, right? But so we, we and have, live correctly and love correctly. Yeah, There's so, no complete person without an understanding of, of right. where we come from. Right. So what uh, there are a number of us at UCLA that uh, worked on start, starting the Asian American, founding the Asian American Study Center which was able to have ethnic studies later. Um, and uh, so uh, as a part of that, I think one thing we learned is that uh, the news that was being printed by mm-hmm. major media, the textbooks that were available, uh, you know, none of those things covered Asian American perspectives. And that there were a lot of people who wanted their voice to be yeah, heard. Yeah. Okay. And uh it was kind of, it was it was kind of mind blowing how much people wanted a vehicle to express themselves. And uh you know because again, you know the the history of Japanese American community in the post World War II years was that, you know, stay quiet, yeah, don't yeah. say anything. Uh, you know, forget about the past, just live your life. But I think for the Sansei generation, it wasn't like this. We want to express ourselves. We And being able to do that did a couple of things. One is that uh, it freed people to ex- express themselves in poetry, uh, in prose, in, uh, in news reporting, a lot of the other um all the illustrations that you see on, mm-hmm. on the Ghidra covers. So a lot of uh, ways to ex- express themselves. Uh, but also that process um, provided the opportunity for people to learn that I'm not alone in thinking this way. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of people who share my views, my feelings and so a lot of the, you know, the poetry that young people wrote, and they're, these are like high school and, and college students, very personal, very um, deep, uh, you know, uh, things that people talked about. And so, and I, I think Ghidra allowed that to happen because, you know, like I said, 
mainstream media wouldn't cover anything that we were doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, so and uh, so we we put our hearts and souls into producing the the you know sixty issues of the paper over the, the five year span. And uh, I think uh, one thing that we didn't realize at the time was that um, after it was done in five years, from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy four. And we thought, okay, we're done and we're moving on to other things. But the the uh, the enduring nature of what we produced back then, like these, the Ghidras are still used in Asian American studies classes 50 years later. And how much interest there are among people, young people today is amazing to me. Yeah. But I think it shows that we capture something about you know, what our experiences were as young Asian Americans. Well, when you look at the covers, there's no, there's no single aesthetic. There's no one through line that seems to define Ghidra. Every cover that I've seen looks incredibly personal, incredibly motivated by emotion, by, by a, like that feeling of, of burning inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can understand why... Uh, we might be curious what's inside of that the, those tomes. This younger generation. I uh, I hope I hope that you will send us the link so that we can include it, I and we will that. be including the photos of the wall here with okay. your episode, just so people can get some idea of of what what this thing was. Like one one covers a doodle, the other is a, a, a four paragraphs of of poetry of uh-huh. musings whatever it is and right. another one is a black and white photo that's almost indistinguishable right there's a lot of personality to right. it and it, yeah i can see how it, it was why did why did it wind down what happened after five years was it the editors moving on or i think that but also the the rhythm of the progressive movement i think was changing too mm-hmm. and and also like uh the core staff of Ghidra were at a point where we're graduating from college or a few years out of college yeah. and thinking of, uh, you know, uh, moving on. But I, I would say that uh, many of the people stayed active in other arenas of the uh, Asian American movement or the, the left okay. uh, at the time. And, uh, you know, I think one thing that I talk about a lot is that uh, even now a number of people who worked on Ghidra are active or have kind of uh, transformed their thinking at that time into something else but there still is. every episode we wait for a mic bump thank yeah. you for bumping the mic <laughs> still um, you know continue to to uh, think and write and you know mm-hmm. pl- play a role in, in, in social movements um, kind of the question on my mind after after all we've talked about with um, coming to America with with growing up under under immigrant parents being an immigrant yourself through the activism through the the spiral up I think the the biggest question on my mind at this point is um, what what could I be doing that would help us get to that that would help us spiral up higher and faster and better what what's the what what actions what's what can we be doing what do you see i think um here's another quote by uh someone that i admire uh malcolm x Mm -hmm. by any means necessary which means what can we be doing doing what we can by any means necessary to to resist, to change society, to do something productive, and uh, you know have some meaning in your life, something you care about, some passion, and uh, I think uh, it could be um, writing articles, mm-hmm. it could be speaking at. Uh, events or meetings or whatever. It could be organizing marches and rallies. It could be voting on election day. It could be getting arrested for civil disobedience. It could be... I want to do that one. I'm waiting on my wife's visa before I get too disobedient civilly. It could be uh, writing a policy memo. It could be running for office. could be lots of different things. Mm -hmm. But 
by any means necessary. We try, we try to change society. Have you ever run for office? No. Would you consider it? No. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've worked for many politicians. In fact, uh, when I was away from Little Tokyo, mm-hmm. I ran a statewide campaign for a presidential campaign, that of uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson in 1988. Uh, I've also... his pins around yeah, here. I've also... Uh, I was also very involved in the uh, international support movement for ending apartheid in South Africa. And so I had a chance to meet Mandela twice, once in L.A. and once in South Africa. Because um, when the transition of power was taking place in South Africa, I uh, was invited to participate in their uh, founding conference after Mandela was released from uh, prison. And... uh, so all of those things, I think, uh, gave me a very, you know, a much broader perspective. Uh, but one thing is that, I, you know, I think it takes a certain kind of uh, person to be a, uh, to run for office and to be an elected official. Mm-hmm. I felt that I could contribute by supporting those people, running their campaign. So I've run presidential campaign, like I said. I've also run... Uh, campaigns and the housing projects of Watts mm-hmm. for resident management council, people running for to be the leadership of the of the projects. So I've done a lot of different things, but and uh, you know, I think uh, we have to find what our strengths are, what our talents are, what we're good at, and contribute that way. I mean, and being an elected official politician, uh, it's not my cup of tea. Okay, I believe you. I'm <laughs> trusting you on that one. Can we talk just a little bit about uh, Little Tokyo? Okay. What's the what's the overview? What's the what's the the elevator pitch for what Little Tokyo is? Okay, I think there are a lot of people that could give you the current mm-hmm. elevator pitch, but let me just kind of put a different twist to it because. Uh, I think I, I never lived in Little Tokyo, but I always thought of Little Tokyo as my home in the United States. Um, I was introduced to Little Tokyo because my father, who lived, we lived in the Crenshaw area, which is about eight miles from here. But every weekend we came to Little Tokyo to shop, to go to the barber shop, uh, to uh, see an eye doctor, whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of the professional services, the products, the, the restaurants were in Little Tokyo at the time. And back in the 50s and 60s, uh, it was still a community where people came to get connected to, I, I guess, your own identity yeah, through food, yeah. through culture, through a lot of things. And um, so as a child, I got used to coming here on a regular basis. Even And then, uh, again, uh, when I was at UCLA and we took up ethnic studies, um, when we got our first class, we didn't have an ethnic studies, Asian American studies professor. There were no such things. Yeah, There were no Asian American studies texts. There were no such things. So we had to come back to Little Tokyo to learn about Japanese Americans. We came to, to learn from the elders, living Issei people who... Mm-hmm could tell us about the history that they went through. But in the process, we learned that they uh, were monolingual. They, were, uh, they didn't have the support system to, for them to access, uh, say, government, uh, mainstream government services that they were entitled to mm-hmm. just because they didn't speak English. So we provided those kinds of services. And, and so I think our, our initial introduction was not so much the community as a whole, mm-hmm. but uh, to the individual people. So uh, having, and that's where like, I began to see the connection between social change, changing society, uh, and social service, it's changing individuals or helping individuals to overcome difficulties. Mm-hmm. And so the so, social change and social service 
became uh, sort of tied in together. And and so I I still view Little Tokyo in, kind of in that lens where, you know, it's the people that make up the community. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I think the efforts to preserve Little Tokyo, the buildings, the businesses, the institutions are very important. But it's... You know, it's uh, in the service of providing something for people who both live here, work here, visit here, and live elsewhere and come here once a year. That there's a connection that they could feel to this community. So, um, how long is this elevator? It's a tall building. (laughs) We're going up to the 150th floor. It's... it's yeah. a, a bad habit I'm in from living in Japan. When I when I come through this neighborhood, like I see the temple, I see the Shotengai, I see all these things that in Japan, there's no questions asked. That's going to be there. It's yeah. it's okay. The, yeah. There's no threat to it. And I forget that in we're in Los Angeles, where every square foot is is highly coveted. Right. And uh, could potentially be a Starbucks out of seventy five story tall building right. for Merrill Lynch or something like 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 every square foot is right. being uh, viewed through that lens here not so much in in Sengendai or the, you know outside just outside of Tokyo uh, what was the name of your town near Hiroshima what was your where uh, you grew up it's called Tsuyama Tsuyama and it's in Okayama Ken okay okay I've been I've been to Okayama I haven't mm-hmm. been to Tsuyama but yeah. I have I have been through Okayama yeah. um Let's pull some cards out and see what happens. All right. What have you got? You go first. I'll go second. What is your earliest memory? That's a very generic question. Burn, man. (laughs) Savage. Have we covered it already? I feel like we spent a bit of time in your youth. Yeah, I think we have. Okay, then you can ding out. I get the next one. What is that? How, how can we support you? I think... Uh, and you can answer for you specifically, or you can make you whatever you want it to be? No, I'm going to make you, you. How can we support me? <laughs> no, no. How can you support me? How can I support you? That's what I meant to... It was, yeah. yeah uh, sorry, I don't have my glasses. How can I support you better? So I, I think uh, you're doing a good job. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn. When was the last time you cried? Do you uh, cry? Are you yeah, an actually, emotional fella? Actually, I'm not that emotional. But um, the last time I cried was, I think, when I saw a really good uh, s- sports story about someone helping another teammate mm-hmm. um, or maybe helping the opposing team or something. But I can't remember the details, but that's the last time I cried. <laughs> that was pretty recent. Beautiful. I think I remember that story. I don't remember the specifics, <laughs> but I do I do remember hearing about that in the news. Yeah. All right, what's next? This is my question. Okay, what's the one thing you want to do immediately after you leave here for your career? Well, you know, at my age, I'm not really thinking about my career. (laughs) My career, uh, I want it to be over. So I could do a lot more of the things that I like to do, which probably will include being involved in Little Tokyo, but going beyond that. What do you want to be doing here? What, what, what do you think would be, uh, what, what's cool, what's good to build here? What, what would you be investing your, your time and your, your headspace in? Actually, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is uh, while all these threats, external threats, uh, are going on in Little Tokyo. I want to think about: Is there a way to bring the community closer together within the community? And uh, that could be the Little Tokyo community and the various forces in it. 
it could be the question of uh, the Japanese American Nikkei population and the Shinisei, the post-war immigrants mm -hmm. together, or it could, you know, I think the definitions of who the groups are could be English speaking and Japanese speaking, you know, but some, uh, that, that sort of, uh, I think, uh, I wouldn't say schism, but that that uh, that lack of unity yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that exists uh, could be Japanese Americans and others mm -hmm. unity uh, and uh, a better understanding of people. Uh, but you know, there. So I'm I'm interested in seeing how do we explore the ways in which we bring people together and yeah. yeah. And uh, I think in a way that that allows people to resist and fight oppression in a better mm -hmm. way. So, you know, obviously it doesn't include bringing people together is not including like the, uh, the present administration. Yeah. You know, uh, but just ordinary people. It's kind of a fascinating question because I think... Um, the 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 question from my time in Little Tokyo, the question of of how do we survive as a community comes up a lot. How do mm -hmm. we how do we keep this mm -hmm. this space preserved and and in line with with our ideals? The question of like who are we doesn't seem to get as much press. It's not as Kind of, it's not as sexy a topic, maybe, but I think I don't. I, not just for little Tokyo, but pretty much any community is uh, there. When the threats are so large and existential as they feel to be right now, mm -hmm. there is that the the very pressing question of of how do we how do we survive? How does this community stay intact over time? Um, so the, the the other question of who are we as a community is is a fascinating one. And I appreciate that you are planting that in my head, not just for the little Tokyo, but for every community that I'm a member of. Yeah, so you're getting very philosophical now. But I guess... Did I hijack no, the point no, no. And, and derail the train? No, no, no. But okay. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I think it's important to understand the threats now mm -hmm. in the context of the whole history of little Tokyo, if we're talking about little Tokyo. And that, in my view... Little Tokyo has always un been under threat. And there have been points at which, you know, it seems more apparent, you know, but uh, whether it's the, you know, the Little Tokyo that existed because there's housing discrimination in other areas of the city and they were forced to be congregated into an ethnic enclave. Mm -hmm. Or the little Tokyo that almost disappeared because of the incarceration during World War II. Okay. Or the little Tokyo that shrunk because of redevelopment and in the 1950s and 60s, uh, more redevelopment of the 80s and the gentrification that's taking place now. But I think to understand that there's a continuum, there's a history, there's, there's a, um, a commonality to what's going on now throughout the 130 years of little Tokyo history and sort of projecting beyond, you know, like I, I don't see uh, even the present as a crisis or as uh, what you said about, is it an ex existential question? Will it survive? I don't see it quite that darkly or that, that starkly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I see it more, that any any community in any society will continue to evolve, and new you know old things disappear, new things come about, and we want the new things to be better than what the old things were. But um, whether, for example, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about not just Little Tokyo, but the Japanese American community. Is it shrinking? Is it surviving? Is it going to be around in 50 years? And we talk about the diversification uh, 
within the Japanese American community were, were once we had Issei, Nisei, Sansei, those very clear generational differences or cohorts. But beyond that, wasn't that different. But now we have Hapa, uh, the, or, you know, children of mixed marriages. Uh, we have, People who are of different generations of the parents are from, you know, one Issei, one Sansei, whatever. Uh, A lot of different kinds of experiences that people have and, and, you know, what uh, bring to the table. Now, I think that uh, it's partly a matter of, you know, like um, bloodline, whatever, Mm -hmm. but... It's mainly like how you identify yourself and how you relate to that community and uh, choices that you make about how you relate to that community. And and to me, you know, there may be a leveling off in numbers, population, or it may be even a shrinkage. But to me, that's not the important thing. I don't think Japanese American community will, will disappear anytime soon. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, but again, it is a matter of uh, proactively working on making those things survive, but it doesn't have it doesn't have to keep growing and growing and growing. I don't think that's necessary. Mm. I feel like yours is a perspective that has been earned over time, and I'm hoping that I uh, get to earn a similarly informed perspective of, of life and of the world around me. So I think are we good? I think we're good. Yeah. I think we could end there. That was a, that was a really good a, okay. a really good closeout. All right. Let me let me put on our goodbye music okay. and then we'll we'll wind down. This has been the Hollywood Fishbowl, and I've been your host, Jesse Kester. I will continue to be Jesse Kester as long as I live. If you liked what you heard, you can find us at www.hollywoodfishbowl.com and on Instagram and Twitter at HWFishbowl. Mike Munase, I can't imagine that you are blowing up the Instagram and Twitter, but where can people find you if they want to know more about who you are and what you're working on? Are you blowing up the Instagram? Was that a wrong assumption? No, no. okay. <laughs> I actually... I'm, I'm active on Facebook, but... Okay. Um, and, and I think it's a public uh, account, but um, not so much on Instagram or Twitter. Okay. And I guess if people want to find you, they could come down to Little Tokyo. I've bumped That's into right. you a couple of times. That's you're, right. You're pretty active here. Yeah. You're a, a find-in-person kind of person, I think. Thank you. All right. We're good. Let's get you All out right. of here. I can't tell you, I can't say thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us. All right. You have a, uh, you have a good radio voice. Thank you.